Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This is episode 94 of the Garden DC podcast. We talk with Andrew Bunting all about magnolias, and you'll want to have a pen and paper nearby so you can jot down all those new plants you want to add to your garden. The plant profile is on heaths and heathers, and in the What's New segment, I'll share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local garden events. This episode, we're joined by Andrew Bunting, Vice President of Public Gardens and Landscapes at the Horticultural Society of Pennsylvania, or as is better known, PHS Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. And listeners might recall that Andrew was with us for episode 60, talking about all things hydrangeas. Today, he is back to talk about all things magnolias. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. So we are just beginning the spring cycle and things are starting to bud up and and open up in our gardens. Um, Before we dive into all things magnolia, maybe let's talk about your home garden for a second, Andrew. What signs of spring are you seeing? Right. You know, as you mentioned, some things are either have buds on them or are budding up. My my hellebores are starting to flower and and snowdrops. Um, the next thing for me will be um, some of the early spice bushes. Those those are budding up and should be coming out relatively soon. And then I see street trees like red maples silver maples, elms, they're all, you know, actually beginning to flower, even though that their flowers are somewhat inconspicuous. Yeah, and I'm really loving the hellebores in my garden at this time of year. They seem later than they normally were, so they are so welcome at this point. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in general, the, the winter is a little colder. So, you know, we've been kind of teased into thinking that, you know, spring should start in February. Well, you know, 30 years ago, spring really, at least up in the Swarthmore area, didn't really start until the beginning of April. So nowadays, it's if we have some warm, a warm period, you can actually get things blooming quite early. And those buds we mentioned swelling, I in particular notice my saucer magnolia. Those are the ones that I really notice because they have those big fuzzy appendages to them. And before we dive into saucer magnolias, we should talk about maybe the earliest blooming of the magnolias in our gardens in this area. Right. So the first, well, there could be a, a number of ones that are really the earliest. So, you know, one is one of the most common of all the magnolias, and it's common for a good reason because it's so ornamental, are the star magnolias, magnolia stellata. They can bloom depending on where you are from, you know, like in D.C., or, you know, south of here, they, they could start really almost a- any time. Typically here in the Philadelphia area, they're going to start blooming right at the end of March, kind of early April. And there's a whole host of early magnolias. So there's magnolia stellata, and there's a few cultivars of that. The ones people would uh, most know about is just straight stellata, which has... Mo- so in all, all magnolias, the... What most people think of is the petal is actually a modified petal called a tepal. So when I say T-E-P-A-L, essentially that's a, a petal. Mm-hmm. So a stellata, a straight stellata is white with multiple tepals, and that's true of all the stellatas. The common name is a star magnolia. There's one called rosia that has soft pink flowers. Uh, the one I like the best is called centennial, uh, which was selected by the Arnold Arboretum at Harvard. And... Uh, it's actually a small tree. So stellata can be anywhere from like a multi-stem large shrub, say 15 feet by 15 feet of maturity, or a small tree up to say 20 feet tall and more upright than broad. And then there's kind of a tree form of stellata or the star magnolia called cobus. And that can get you know, 40 or 50 feet tall and still have the star-like magnolia flowers. And then also right around the same time, perhaps even a little earlier, is the Yulan magnolia, or sometimes called the tulip magnolia. That's magnolia denudata. For this area, that's really the earliest one to flower, and that's usually uh, right at the end of 
of March. So I would say Denya Data is first and then the star. And Denya Data is uh, ivory white. It's very fragrant. So with a lot of magnolias, some are fragrant, some, some aren't. A lot of the star magnolias are also fragrant. Uh, but they also, the, the really early ones run the risk of, they're the most vulnerable to getting frosted. So say we have a, you know, a fairly warm several days and the, the star magnolia comes out and Denya Data comes out and then it gets cold at night, you know, say um, 34 or, or below, and then they get frosted. So then the flowers just get, they either get singed or they actually just turn completely brown and then it, that you're done for the year. So the flowers get damaged, but it doesn't really damage the plant. So the damage is somewhat superficial. Others that bloom around that, that same time, perhaps just a a little later, another very popular magnolia is one called Leonard Messel, which looks like a star magnolia, but it has kind of soft pink flowers and it's really a large shrub. So Leonard Messel at maturity would probably be about 15 feet tall, but by 15 feet wide. But for most of its life, like the shrubby version of the star magnolia is, is fairly diminutive in the landscape. Uh, with Denya data, there I forgot to mention there is one called that was selected at the Scott Arboretum, which is nearby, called Swarthmore Sentinel, which is uh, a really upright kind of sentinel-shaped magnolia to about 40 feet tall. Regular uh, magnolia Denya get, data gets about 25 feet tall, with a spread of about 20 feet. Next up, as far as the popular ones go, would be one called Wada's Memory. Water's memory is a hybrid between Magnolia cobis, which I mentioned earlier, and another earlier flowering one called the Anis magnolia, Magnolia salicifolia. And I, if I was going to pick 10 of my favorite magnolias, Wada's memory would be one of them. So it's Magnolia cuensis and then Wada's memory. Wada's spelled W-A-D-A apostrophe S. And um, its habit is, I would say, upright and somewhat oval when it's young for the first 20 years or so. And then it kind of broadens into kind of a broadly pyramidal uh, habit. And it can get quite large at Winterthur, which is a famous public garden in Delaware. There's one there that probably is 40 feet tall and probably 40 feet wide. And it has fragrant white tepals born in abundance. And what's important to remember with all magnolias is that they are uh, early blooming in the sense they bl bloom when they're, when they're young. So a lot of trees have to mature to be like 10, 15, 20 years old before they even flower any appreciation amount. But with a magnolia, you can get a little twig from a mail order nursery and even the first year it's going to have flowers. And also magnolias are relatively uh, fast uh, growing. So, you know, if you planted a magnolia again, say it was a foot tall, the next year it's going to be three feet tall. The next year it's going to be five feet tall. So probably every year it's going to grow, you know, close to two feet a year, both in height as well as in its spread or its breadth. So then another one that's um, kind of closely related is um, one called Wildcat, uh, which is actually a, a selection of Cobus. So Wildcat has uh, white flowers again a little, little bit later. Um, but if you want one that's kind of tree-like with star, star magnolia-like flowers, I would say either Wada's Memory or Wildcat. And then that brings you up to kind of, so in a typical year, let's just say that all these start blooming on the 1st of April, you know, it would be Denya Data and then Cobus and Stellata and then Salicifolia and Wada's Memory and then Leonard Messel. And then the next big kind of peak are the, which you mentioned with the big swelling buds now, which is the saucer magnolia, which I would really consider the, you know, if you could only grow one magnolia, it would have to be the saucer magnolia because they're the abundance of flowers is, is incredible. Like uh, around here, a lot of the older homes have, you know, fairly mature specimens of the saucer magnolia. So they might be, say, 40 or 50 feet tall with a, an equal spread. And when they're in flower, you know, usually in the middle of April, they're just completely covered with this amazing abundance of flowers, typically in the in the pink range, some, some are kind of whitish, 
And they do on occasion get frosted as well. So even though they might bloom 10, 10 days to 14 days later than um, uh, the earlier magnolias, they still bloom early enough where they can still run the risk of, of getting frosted. But when they're in flower, they there there is no other flowering tree that's as spe- spectacular as the saucer magnolias. Yeah, I was going to jump in and say that they're so beautiful down at the Smithsonian Helped Garden. There's two kind of rows of them on each side of the main pathway in back of the castle at the Smithsonian. And I think during cherry blossom season that they are on par, if not better than the cherry blossoms. And and often I will see tourists come and get distracted there and spend (laughs) most of their time taking their photos. And even when, you know, the, the teeples, as you say, are dropping off, um, same thing with the cherry blossoms. It's just like a beautiful carpet of petals um, to sit and be amongst and take pictures of those as well. Yeah, I would have to agree. I'm a big ornamental cherry fan a- as well. And they, you know, they're incredibly beautiful. You know, most of the ones around the tidal basin are the Yoshino cherry, Prunus yetoensis. And they, they too are totally covered in flowers, but with cherries, the flowers are much smaller in size and they're, they're typically not fragrance so with you know the saucer magnolia you get fragrance you get large flowers real blousy flowers like you know maybe maybe for some people that's just too much flower power in cherries it's much you know much smaller Mm -hmm. uh flat flowers i'm glad you mentioned the haup garden because there are you know if you go from dc north there's many great public gardens that have exceptional magnolia collections so just to name a few so in dc i mean there's some magnolias at the u.s botanic garden but there's a you know world-class collection of magnolias at the u.s national arboretum in dc and then brookside gardens in wheaton maryland has a good collection and then heading north kind of up into this area you know, places like Mount Cuba Center would be great for native magnolias, which there's many. Uh, Winter Tour, more kind of estate-like setting, of course, Longwood Gardens. And then in the uh, you know, immediate Philadelphia area, probably the best collections are the Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore College. And then the Morris Arboretum in Chestnut Hill, so kind of northern Philadelphia. It's part of University of Pennsylvania. And then uh, heading a little bit more north into New York City. Actually, the High Line in mm-hmm. New York City has a great collection. Not coll- I won't call it a, a collection per se, but the, the landscape. There's part of a landscape where it becomes kind of the, an elevated walkway. And you walk through many of the native largeleaf magnolias, like magnolia macrophylla, uh, ashii, I think tripetala is in there. And then Brooklyn Botanic Garden. It has a, an older collection. That's where a lot of the uh, yellow magnolias originated from. Uh, New York Botanic Garden. And then uh, you know, if you even go far, farther north, uh, you know, Boston, uh, Arnold Arboretum and, and Harvard has a great collection as well. So I guess that chronologically takes us. And some of the great saucer magnolias are ones like uh, Alexandrina, uh, Lenii, which has kind of a, a bicolor flower where it's uh, uh, reddish pink on the outside and, and white on the inside. Uh, there is actually a kind of a diminutive or small version of the saucer magnolia called Lilliputian, which only gets about uh, 10 feet tall with a spread of about six feet. Hmm. Uh, I do like the, the older ones. And actually, um, so the uh, scientific name for the saucer magnolias is Sulangiana. And the very first magnolia hybrid ever uh, was made by a man named Soulange from from uh, France. And it was done in the early 1800s, I think 1827, but I would have to check that date or that year. And he hybridized the, the parents of um, Solangiane, of one of them being Magnolia denudata, the Uland Magnolia, which I m- mentioned earlier. And uh, so that's where a lot of the fragrance for a lot of the saucer magnolias comes from. So there, a lot of the older cultivars are older French cultivars. Some are hard, harder to find than others. Like if you went to a garden center and got a saucer magnolia, it may not even be a named uh, cultivar. Like if you walk around Swarthmore, I'd say most of the Solangianas are probably grown from seed and don't have cultivars. But every 
I would say every single one of them is spectacular. So there's not there's not like a dud in the bunch. So you can't really can't go wrong with uh, the saucer magnolia. And I'm glad you're using the Latin name and shared that because there's a lot of confusion with the common name for saucer magnolia. I'll hear them called tulip magnolia or tulip tree. Yeah, that's, you know, uh, I would say in general, (laughs) common names can be uh, confusing. Uh, You know, I know the Latin names can be a little daunting for people, especially if they're, they're just learning plant names. But the good thing about the scientific name is there there's only one scientific name. And uh, with common names, there could be hundreds. I forgot the plant, but it's a, it's a perennial. And just in Germany alone, it has something like 150 different vernacular names. So you can imagine how, how confusing that could be. So I guess the next group, and this would be kind of, when I think of magnolias, I almost divide them into to weeks. So the first week would be, say, uh, Denia data, Incobus, and Stellata. And maybe the second week is Salicifolia and Wada's memory. And maybe towards the end of that week is are the, are the saucer magnolias, magnolia salangiana. Then maybe the third week are like the girl. So there's a whole group called the girls. Some people call them the little girls. I think officially they're the girls. And they were bred at the U.S. National Arboretum in the early 60s. And the parents are, most of them have Stellata rosea, so the pink star magnolia. And then they also have another shrubby magnolia as a parent called uh, Lilliflora nigra. And so you combine the two. And what you end up with is for for mostly their shrubby magnolias are almost like little trees and they're, you know, small to medium size for most of their lives. And then ultimately they kind of broaden out. So up at the Scott Arboretum, they got an original collection of the girls in uh, 1962. So those trees are all 60 years old now. And so at maturity, they're, I think like, let's say mostly like 18 feet tall by 20 feet wide. But for, you know, most of the life, for the first 30 years or so, they were actually fairly small trees or, or largish shrubs. So they, I think there's seven all together, and I won't remember all their names, but there's Anne, Betty, Judy, Ricky, ending with an I, Susan. Pinky. Pinky. That's one of my favorites. I love yeah, that name. Right. Uh, the ones that are the easiest to find would be probably Anne, Susan, and maybe Betty. Not to say you couldn't find all of them because uh, there are some really great mail order uh, nurseries to find magnolias from. And uh, some of those would include um, kind of mid to northern New Jersey is Rare Find Nursery. And then on the West Coast is Gossler Farms. Those are both good uh, mail order purveyor of magnolias. There used to be more magnolia nurseries, but some of them have uh, kind of dissolved. Uh, so the, the girls bloom late enough that they most often don't run the risk of getting frosted. So they're kind of, they, they're usually kind of safe, so to speak. And then after the girls would be kind of a mix of, uh, there's one called, I mean, there's many magnolias out there, but there's one called Star Wars, which is a uh, a hybrid between Campbellii. So the Magnolia Campbellii is really a magnolia that uh, most people covet, but they can't grow because it it grows in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. And it really likes a climate more like, say, England or San Francisco or Seattle where it's cool. You know, it probably would actually be hardy here, but our heat and humidity of the summer would not be favorable to that uh, species. But Star Wars has it as a parent. So it actually, Star Wars has kind of Campbellii-like flowers and what people are attracted to with Campbellii is it has flowers that are almost a foot across. So Star Wars isn't quite that big, but they're probably eight inches across, pink, and they bloom kind of late or late-ish for the magnolias. Another one that blooms kind of in that same period is another uh, National Arboretum introduction called Galaxy. So Galaxy and there's a sister seedling called Spectrum are tree 
a more tree-like magnolias. Galaxy actually makes, um, I've seen it uh, grown as a street tree in Columbus, Ohio, where it's uh, a single trunk and then a really nice oval head. And a lot of people would think, oh, magnolias wouldn't be good as a street tree because they're, you know, they're too finicky. But magnolias are actually not finicky at all. They really have, you know, very little kind of pest and disease problems. They're actually fairly urban tolerant. You know, what some people might not like is all those teepoles then once they're finished kind of shedding onto onto the street or sidewalk and, and, and you know, could create for some slick conditions. Also blooming around that time would be, um, there's a really great one called uh, Coral Lake. So Coral Lake looks like, um, for all intents and purposes, looks like a, a saucer magnolia, but it blooms later and it can be more tree-like. It actually has a, a yellow magnolia as a parent, but when you look at it, it totally reads pink and it is uh, slightly fragrant. So if you like saucer magnolias, but you don't want to run the risk of them getting frosted, then maybe try one like Coral Lake. And then there's another great pink one uh, called Daybreak. So there was a famous magnolia hybridizer called August Kerr. Actually, for his his job was a, a USDA scientist, but then he, he uh, retired and moved to Asheville, North Carolina, and he took up magnolia hybridizing as a, a hobby. And he created many different cultivars, but probably his most famous one is Daybreak, which is a large pink flower, almost like Magnolia Campbellii, has intense fragrance, it's fast growing, and it blooms late enough that it doesn't run the risk of, of getting frosted. So next in line would be uh, the yellow magnolias. So for a long period of time, the yellow magnolias were really kind of the holy grail of the magnolia world. Like it was theorized that a yellow magnolia could be created because there, there's a native magnolia called the uh, cucumber magnolia, magnolia cuminata, that has, the flowers are actually fairly inconspicuous, but they are yellowish. So it was theorized that maybe you could take that as a species and hybridize it with something else and create a yellow magnolia. So as I mentioned earlier, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden in the late 60s and early 70s had a breeding program. And there was a couple different breeders. One of them was uh, Lola Cortine. And she took Magnolia denudata, which I mentioned earlier, that's one of the real early whites, and hybridized it with Magnolia cuminata, which has little yellow flowers, and created the first yellow, which was Magnolia elizabeth. And Magnolia Elizabeth blooms, I would say, more like the third week of April, sometimes at the end of April. Depending on where you are, it can bloom even into May. And um, so probably in D.C., I, I suspect the yellows start blooming, you know, first to second week of April. Up here, they're typically third to, last, you know, last week in April. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of yellows. So the first yellow was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is still a good magnolia today. So because it's a hybrid, it has hybrid vigor. So it grows a little bit more quickly and, and matures more quickly than most magnolias. And because one of the parents is accumulated, the cucumber magnolia, so that tree gets to be 100 feet tall. So a lot of the yellows get can get quite large, not 100 feet tall, but I've seen Elizabeths that are 40 or 50 feet tall. And it has a beautiful kind of soft butter yellow or sulfur yellow flower and it has slight fragrance so acuminata has no fragrance but denudata has fragrance so some of the yellows are fragrant but not not all of them so elizabeth Hett was the first but the earliest of all the yellows to flower and this would be kind of mid april would be one called butterflies and that was hybridized by a man named phil savage from ohio and uh, it has multiple brighter yellow tepals than Elizabeth. Elizabeth's flowers are kind of upright, almost kind of tulip shaped. Butterflies tends to be more almost like a yellow star magnolia. But again, it, it, it's a tree as well. So butterflies is the first yellow to flower, then a whole bunch of others like Elizabeth. And then another great one that came out of the Brooklyn botanic garden breeding program is one called Lois, which has more of like a, a rose or even a kind of chalice shaped flower that's brighter yellow than Elizabeth. And also the habit of, 
of Lois is, is more compact than Elizabeth. And then there was, you know, literally, if there was one yellow magnolia in 1980. 80, let's say, with Elizabeth there. If you were to collect all the yellow magnolias today, there's got to be 75 different ones. So probably 65 too many, but there's a lot out there. And a lot of them actually bloom so late that they're blooming uh, as the leaves are coming out. So the the flowers are actually kind of shrouded amongst the, the leaves. I like the ones that bloom before the leaves come out, like butterflies, Elizabeth, and Lois. There is one that I do like that comes out as the leaves are emerging called Judy Zook. So when I worked at the Scott Arboretum and uh, when I started in the 80s, uh, Judy Zook was the uh, director. And then she left around 1990 and became the president of the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And then as she was retiring to kind of commemorate her time and uh, her contributions to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. There was a magnolia that was already kind of out and about, and uh, it was called Magnolia BBGRC1164. So if you have that magnolia, you have Magnolia Judy Zook. So obviously just uh, a coded number was not uh, a way to sell a magnolia. So they named it in honor of her. And it's an interesting plant in that it has Acuminata and Denudata's parents, but also has a little bit of Stellata rosea in it. So the flowers are actually very upright, kind of very kind of tulip shaped, blooms like the last week of April. The flowers are actually kind of a suffusion of orange and yellow and even a, a slight amount of pink. And the fragrance is actually fruity. It, to me, it smells like the cereal uh, Fruit Loops. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, most, I would say most uh, magnolias have a, a, a sweet fragrance, but this has a fruity fragrance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always think of them as kind of like a lemony honey yeah. scent to most yeah, of them. Even, even like some people have described magnolia flowers as smelling like uh, hand lotion, like Jergens hand <laughs> lotion. Or yeah. that Jergens smells like magnolia. The other <laughs> exactly. Way <around. laughs> so that kind of take, you know, that takes you through, I would say, the, the real, what I would consider magnolia season. You know, after that, uh, the ones that start flowering are things like Magnolia virginiana, which is the Sweet Bay Magnolia, which is can be either evergreen to semi-evergreen. The flowers are born sporadically, but they're intensely, uh, they're white with intense lemon fragrance. And then um, also around that time, all the big leaf magnolias. So there's a whole series of native magnolias to the United States, mainly from, say, there's some that come as far north as Pennsylvania, but they're generally a southeastern species or species. Mm-hmm. And so they would include the umbrella magnolia, magnolia tripetala, that has the biggest leaves up to a, a three feet long. Then the next one is the big leaf magnolia, and that's magnolia macrophylla, maybe up to two feet long. And then uh, magnolia macrophylla ashii has same size leaves as macrophylla, but it has a silvery underside, and that's only native to the panhandle of Florida. And then there's Magnolia fraseri, Magnolia pyramidata. So all these magnolia, these North American native magnolias have um, these big tropical leaves. They actually, would, you know, most people, if they looked at them, they would not think they were a magnolia at all. And then they, they have flowers that are born after the leaves come out. And they're sporadic, but some of them are quite beautiful, like Magnolia macrophylla ashii is a big white flower with a, a purple splotch in the center and fragrant. Uh, Magnolia tripetala has a smaller flower, but still fairly large, but it's actually kind of fetid. You know, it has a, has a bad uh, smell to it. And a lot of those have actually been used for hybridizing purposes. And I mentioned earlier, there's a whole bunch used for textural effect on the, at the High Line in New York City. And then kind of, I guess there is one more Magnolia season and for any, anybody that lives in, you know, Washington, D.C., kind of south, or even parts of Maryland, for that matter, you know, would be familiar with the southern magnolia. And that's Magnolia grandiflora. And that's the magnolia that has the big, shiny, uh, o- almost kind of plastic-like mm-hmm. uh, leaves. And then the flowers are born kind of sporadically in, in the summer also intensely fragrant and there's some wonderful cultivars so that whole group there's there's ones that just are kind of green on the underside and then there's others that have this fine brown fuzz called the indumentum 
And um, some of them are actually cultivated because that brown fuzz is so attractive. So there's ones like Bracken's Brown Beauty, Dee Dee Blanchard. There's a new one out that I love called Teddy Bear. So mm-hmm. Teddy, Teddy yeah. Bear has the brown fuzz, white flowers, but it's actually smaller in stature, both in su- ultimate size as well as the size of the leaves. And then there's another, a couple other even more diminutive ones, one called Little Gem and another one called K Paris. And then there's some that are grown for the real upright uh, habit, like Hassie and uh, Alta, A-L-T-A. And they, as you know, if you walk, all you have to do is just walk around any of the, the federal buildings in, in downtown Washington, D.C. And there's, you know, some that are 50, 60 feet tall in the wild. So they grow in like places like Georgia, Alabama, northern Florida, Mississippi in the wild. Magnolia grandiflora can get over 100 feet tall. It is, it, it's probably the most ubiquitous and widespread from a, a cultivation point of view, magnolia in the world. I've seen magnolia grandiflora as a street tree in uh, Hubei, China, as well as Bogota, Colombia. I was just in South Africa in the fall, and the only magnolia I saw in the entire country in a park was magnolia grandiflora. Uh, it can grow, it's, I mean, it's hardy to say zone six and, and higher. So you're obviously not going to find Magnolia Grandiflora in Chicago. However, I was in Denver once lecturing and they had, there is a Magnolia Grandiflora in the Denver Botanic Garden. And I saw another one at, at, at like a high school. So it can even grow in Denver. So that's, you know, that's kind of the overview of Magnolias in general. Obviously there's, you know, hundreds of species uh, what's what what is interesting to note is you know most people know these hybrids and they know some species like Magnolia virginiana or the southern magnolia or the big leaf magnolias but uh, magnolias are actually found there's over 100 species throughout Asia and they go all the way down through like Vietnam and Cambodia and Thailand and go as as far south as like Papua New Guinea and then in the United States, there's, um, I think, seven natives. There's another seven endemic magnolias to Cuba. There's dozens of species in Mexico, Central America, Northern South America. And in Colombia alone, there's over 40 endemic native magnolias. They're only found in Colombia. And they're all towering evergreen trees. So we mostly we think of magnolias as deciduous trees, but most magnolias in the wild, especially like southeastern Asia, uh, Mexico, Central America, Cuba, northern South America, and then there's actually quite a few dotted throughout the Caribbean, are all fairly large evergreen trees. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the Holy Grail at one point was the yellow magnolia, and that's you know, that's been accomplished. The next holy grail in the magnolia world is to find a true red magnolia. And there's a there's a, a Chinese species called Magnolia insignis that has a flower that's reddish. So the idea is they could take that species and start hybridizing it with other species and perhaps start to find a, a red, a truly red magnolia. And also a lot of these new evergreen ones that are coming out of especially places like southern China in Vietnam are starting to be become, you know, they're at least available in botanic gardens and arboreta and starting to be used for hybridizing as well. So I think what we think of as an evergreen magnolia, which would primarily be the southern magnolia and sweet bay magnolia, I think you'll start to see uh, new new hybrids that are that are different looking magnolias. When I was in Colum- in Bogota, there's a native magnolia there called Magnolia hernandesii, which has leaves that are like three times the size of the southern magnolia. And they're, they actually have a, a corrugated tex- texture to the leaf surface. So hmm. you can imagine something like that, you know, as a, you know, a new choice for like the southern magnolia. You know, that there's really, I won't say there's endless possibilities because I think it's unlikely there'll ever be a blue magnolia because there aren't really any magnolias that are blue. So, so some of the colors are are limited. And I'm glad you brought up the deciduous versus evergreen, because I think that's maybe the one complaint I hear about magnolias. Um, they're beautiful that they bloom on 
pretty much bare stems. So that, yep. you know, those early flowering ones are especially are beautiful, but it's that there's not much that can grow under the evergreen ones. Yes. And that's yep. the one complaint I'll hear is because they just rain down those big leaves yep. and kind of form a thick carpet. Yeah, I agree. I have here at my house one Magnolia grandiflora and it's, you know, we, we talk about in the gardening world, dry shade. And the dry shade that's created by a large magnolia grandiflora is un unequaled. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's so dry, you can hardly grow even like a, a Christmas fern. And then, as you said, it it's constantly dropping, even though it's evergreen, they're always dropping leaves. I think I would say the Southern Magnolia drops leaves 365 days a year, it seems. And then, you know, the, all the flowers come down as well. So... And they're not easily compostable because they're they're so kind of leathery and almost plastic like. Mm -hmm. So you know they are a little they are a little messy. Yeah, it's hard to shred them, and the cones are you know. <laughs> yeah, the cones of, are also, yeah. also messy. Mm -hmm. uh, all that being said, I would still I would still grow one, and I planted mine years ago, twenty years ago, and it was Edith Bogue, which there's been so many better ones that have come come along since then. So I really wish I had like a, like a Dee Dee Blanchard or a te teddy bear instead of the Edith Bogue. And for forcing branches indoors at this time of year, are there any particular ones that you think do better for that? Well, I would do ones that have smaller flowers. Like I think it would be difficult, not impossible, but harder to, to force into flower, like the really large kind of blousy ones. So like, uh, Stellata and Cobus and Leonard Messel, you know, would, would be perfect uh, choices. Denya Data would be a good one as well. Well, and I have to ask, since we were talking about uh, that, you know, it's fairly untroubled yep. uh, species for disease or anything else, but we have to ask the deer question. And yep. I, in my research, I'm hearing not troubled at all by deer. And then some people are saying, Deer love magnolia. So yeah, what do you well, it's kind of um, there's some nuance to the answer, I guess. In that, I would say, as far as eating them, they may eat them, but not as much because a lot. If you scratch the stems of magnolias, a lot of them are fragrant. Like I mentioned earlier, magnolia salicifolia, the anise magnolia. Actually, when you scratch, it smells like anise or lic or licorice. But the problem with magnolias is the the bucks, uh, you know, as the antlers are coming out, they need to rub them on something. And I've seen, um, you know, a lot of magnolia. They for whatever reason they love to rub magnolias, so it's they get destroyed more by the the rubbing than the eating. Especially ones like magnolia virginiana, which when they're young are fairly kind of pliable. It seems like they like to rub things that aren't totally stationary, things that kind of give a little bit and uh, maybe don't have a lot of side branches. So I would say if you have deer issues, maybe cage them when they're young until they, they get kind of a, a sturdy trunk. And then I think as they mature, they should be a little less uh, susceptible. And the only, you know, the real pest issue that people are seeing is there's a scale. So a scale is a white insect that typically is found on trunks or branches of trees. And there is a magnolia scale. And it tends to be, with, as is true with lots of pests and diseases, if your tree is stressed, uh, you know, either it's not getting enough water in the summer, or maybe it's too wet, or whatever the, whatever's causing the stress to the tree, it's then that the magnolia scale comes in. And, uh, uh, the scale can be treated with a with a dormant oil, but other other than that, I mean, they are fair as trees go. They're fairly tough, and they don't need much pruning. Although I do see people shaping them or using them for espalier, um, and so doing a bit of pruning there. Do you have any yeah. tips for that? Yes. Yeah, so the one like the southern magnolia, magnolia grandiflora, can make an incredible espalier. I've seen that it many times. Uh, I would say all the other magnolias would be difficult to espalier. I would say I would not prune a magnolia for the sake of pruning. If you need to go in and maybe take out some dead wood. You know, another thing that happens with magnolias is most of them are grafted onto typically magnolia cobus, but some other species as well. So you will get what's called understock or suckers. 
coming up at the base and it's important to prune those out. And then also a lot of magnolias, especially Southern magnolias have kind of, they almost are like suckers that come up, you know, in, a, in abundance on the trunk, on the large branches. And those are called epicormic shoots and they can be unsightly. So some people remove those as well. And then like a Southern magnolia, maybe over time, you might want to limit up a little bit. You know, those are all just kind of personal aesthetic choices, but you shouldn't, shouldn't need to just prune a magnolia for the sake of, of pruning. And that's great advice about them being grafted onto cobus because uh, should you let some of those shoots take over, that's a whole different size tree you're going to get there, right? Exactly. And, uh, you know, I'll get questions like, why does my magnolia have two different types of flowers? And most likely it's because the understock was allowed to grow up and uh, the plant, the part that should be on top is still there. So you have, you know, essentially have two magnolias in one. You see that a lot with um, witch hazels. Like, uh, you know, some will say, I got, I have a witch hazel. It's both yellow and orange. It's because the yellow one was probably the understock and the orange one is what you wanted. And now you have two kind of growing together. Well, this has been fascinating, Andrew. And I think you've sold me on Wildcat. Yeah, Wildcat's a great one. That yeah. was that was named by uh, Larry Langford, who's a longtime board member of um, the Magnolia Society International. So I should plug that. If people are really interested in magnolias, you, uh, I would for I think it's thirty dollars. Uh, you can join the Magnolia Society International. I think it's magnoliasociety.org. and uh, it's a great. Um, organization, whether you're, you know, a serious professional or an amateur. And so Larry Langford, he selected Wildcat. He's, uh, uh, I think he was living, he's from Tennessee, but I think he went to University of Kentucky, which are the Wildcats. So that's how I got that name. (laughs) I was just looking at the photo and that flower looks like a lotus. It's just beautiful on there. Yeah. And good fragrance Mm -hmm. as well. Nice straight trunk. Yeah, and the other one I have to add to my collection, I think, is Star Wars, just because I'm a big fan of that series. So, <laughs> yeah, how yeah. could I not have that one? Yeah, we. Uh, it was funny. Like at, at Scott Arboretum, there's a an observatory, so all the all the magnolias that had like galactic names, like Star Wars and Galaxy, and you know Starburst or whatever, all all those type of names all got planted around the observatory. I'm sure no, I'm sure nobody noticed that. Uh, that <laughs> subtlety in our in our design nice well any final advice for anybody who wants to add a magnolia to their landscape i would say there's a magnolia out there for every everyone because you know it, it does vary greatly as uh is a genus and the fact that they grow you know relatively quickly and flower at a young age i think is is a good kind of starter tree for Maybe somebody that, you know, is just starting gardening for the first time. So you really can't, you, you can't go wrong because there is so much uh, diversity. And, you know, if you, if you do become, you know, really interested, there are these great collector nurseries where you can find dozens of interesting types of magnolias. Um, there, there's a, a man that's involved with the Magnolia Society called Dick Figler, and he was an engineer. He saw a book on magnolias. He, he bought his first magnolia, I think, in the 70s. And now he's actually, as a hobbyist, he's considered the, world, the, world, the world's taxonomic authority on magnolias. So you never know where, you know, the planting of one, one plant might take you. Yeah, once you get that bug and get, get that obsession, you never know. So thank you so much, Andrew. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Heaths and Heather's Plant Profile. Heaths, Erica's, and Heather's, Kalunas, are members of the Ericaceae family. 
They are evergreen with bell-like flowers and share similar cultural needs. Winter-blooming heathers, the ericas, are also called heaths. The heaths have needle-like leaves and whorls, while the heathers have scale-like leaves similar to junipers. The flower colors range from white through light pink into deep pinks, reds, and purples. The foliage comes in a wide range of greens and bronze tones. They do well in rock gardens and on slopes. They are often used in groupings as a ground cover, as well as a small specimen shrub or in containers. They prefer acid soils like their relatives in the Ericaceae family, the rhododendrons, azaleas, and blueberries. They are generally hardy to USDA zones four to seven. The best time to plant them is in early spring or fall to give them plenty of time to get established before the extreme heat or cold sets in. Water them well for their first year and keep them mulched. They are fairly drought tolerant once established and do not require fertilizer. Winter blooming heaths need four things, good air circulation, excellent drainage, acid soil, and at least six hours of sun. They also like protection from drying winter winds and afternoon shade in hot regions. Heaths and heathers can be found all over the world except Antarctica. The ericas we grow in our gardens come mainly from Western Europe and the Mediterranean. Heaths and heathers look great combined in the landscape with witch hazels, dwarf conifers, crocus, daffodils, winter aconite, hellebores, and snowdrops. Prune just as this year's flowers are ending and shear them back all over for a fuller, more compact look. Cutting back at a later time results in the loss of blooms. Heaths and heathers are considered deer resistant. They are loved by bees and are a great source of nectar in late winter. Heaths and heathers, you can grow that. new this week in the garden. The February gold daffodils are blooming their heads off and I've already cut a couple bouquets from them. And my tete-a-tete -tete daffodils are right on their heels. The interns and I went over to the community garden plot and planted seed. We started organic salad bowl mix of greens in both a container and in the ground. We wanted to see which of those growing situations would be best for this kind of lettuce. So stay tuned for that. We also planted a long row of radish Rudolph alongside a row of Tonda de Perigee carrots. Those last two seeds we sourced from botanical interest and I'm really interested to see especially how those small round carrots will do for us here in the Mid-Atlantic. In the local gardening world, the spring show of the Maryland Home and Garden Show series is happening now, March 5th and 6th and next weekend, March 11th through 13th at the Timonium Fairgrounds outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Also in the local gardening world, Longwood Gardens has opened its restored orchid house. You can go up and visit this stunning new floral displays with a hundred year old structure that's been thoroughly restored and revitalized. The completion of the orchid house restoration marks the first milestone achieved in Longwood reimagined, a sweeping yet deeply sensitive transformation of the 17 acres of the garden's central visitor area. It'll be so nice to be able to see how things are refreshed and done for visitors. Here in DC, we attended the DC's famous cherry blossom kickoff press event. And that's where the National Park Service announces when the cherry blossoms will be at peak bloom. And you probably already heard, the prediction is March 22nd through 25th. And that depends, of course, on how the weather is over the next three weeks and if we are thrown any surprises in that. But there will be cherry blossoms blooming a little before and a bit after that, so don't worry if you can't make it to D.C. for that window. There's also going to be cherry blossoms all over town, not just the Tidal Basin. So go on our blog, washingtongardener.blogspot.com, and check out our post of 17-plus cherry blossom viewing alternatives in the D.C. region if you want to avoid some of those Tidal Blossom crowds or you just want to check out some of the lesser known areas to see cherry blossoms. Happy gardening!
In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jentz and Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space, while also making Making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City, comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org. Celebrate spring with four exciting gardening books and their authors. This free online party takes place on Thursday, March 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern. It is sponsored by National Garden Bureau and Garden Communicators. During this live webinar, you'll get to virtually meet the four authors and learn some of their best gardening tips. Those authors are Sean and Allison McManus, Christy Wilhelmy, Raphael Delalo, and Tony Gatoni. Attendees will also have a chance to win one of three gardening giveaways. Register for this free webinar at ngb.org, select the Education tab, and scroll down to Webinars. See you there. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.